This is a Federal News Network podcast. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is revising its approach to using commercial sources of technology and data. It wants to diversify its sources, improve data security, and maybe have some influence on what the geoint industry does. For details, we turn to the NGA's Associate Director for Enterprise, Gary Duno. Mr. Duno, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be on your show. And my understanding is that the NGA has been using commercial data sources since there are so many satellites now and whatever, drones, balloons, looking down on the Earth. What's the new strategy? What are you trying to accomplish here? Yeah, that's correct, Tom. We've been using commercial source providers for over a decade now, and it's part of our standard processes. The intent with this new strategy, which was released by Admiral Sharp just a few months ago on November 4th, is to try to bring the entire GEOINT community, so broader than just NGA. Your listeners may not be aware, but many leaders in the intelligence community wear multiple hats. In the case of Admiral Sharp, he's not only the director of our agency, but he's also what's referred to as the GEOINT functional manager and has the responsibility to try to bring together the entire community that does GEOINT within the intelligence community and the Department of Defense and make sure that we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars and using these capabilities efficiently and effectively. In the case of commercial imagery providers, it's sort of a unique capability within the intelligence community and DOD because it is a commercial commodity and anyone can go out and purchase the capabilities that are provided by the really expanding uh, number of businesses that are entering the commercial imagery world. And so the strategy is an attempt for us to put on paper how uh, the director would like us to pull the community together to make sure that as we enter contracts, look at new capabilities, we're doing it in a way that's efficient and effective and we're not unnecessarily duplicating purchases or duplicating capabilities that might already exist. So really getting after the unity of effort approach, which is the first tenet of the strategy. So, for example, the Navy might have its own geo-int capabilities, and some of the intelligence agencies have their own, the armed services to boot, and you want to make sure there's a uniform approach so that the government looks like one customer, in effect, to the geo-int industry? That's correct. Like I had mentioned, we really want to uh, make sure we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars, and commercial imagery and commercial services can be used in a, a variety of different organizations in a number of different ways. And so we want to really create some transparency into uh, where those purchases are happening and uh, have conversations with other members of the community, as well as the industry partners, about how we license those capabilities to make sure the government isn't spending money twice for the same capabilities. Now, from the vendor standpoint, I imagine that they would want to sell some to NGA, sell to the Navy, sell to the Coast Guard, sell to even Homeland Security, I guess I'm presuming is also part of this, you know, via the Coast Guard and maybe some other components there. So how do you convince them that to sell once where right now they might be able to have the opportunity to sell eight times? So we work really closely with our partners over at the National Reconnaissance Office who have the responsibility for the commercial imagery acquisition right now to have the right conversations with industry partners about how we write the contracts and the license agreements that support those contracts 
to make sure that we are supportive of the U.S. commercial industry because across the board, we want to make sure that we have a thriving, very robust domestic commercial capability while we also balance that stewardship of taxpayer dollars. And so it's a bit of a negotiation to make sure that we do this right. But in my experience, our industry partners are very good at recognizing their contributions to national security through this effort and having the right perspective on how they approach this business sector as opposed to maybe some of the other sectors. And they do have opportunities on the global stage to market to other nations and other entities around the world to make sure that they're viable businesses. We're speaking with Gary Duno. He is the Associate Director for Enterprise at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And besides data, the memorandum that was expressed by Admiral Sharp mentioned adapting architectures and processes that are oriented more commercially, perhaps. And so that gets beyond the data into maybe other strategies. Talk about those a little bit. Yeah, that's a key factor of this new enterprise commercial geoint strategy is making sure that we're being efficient and effective with resources when it comes to architecture policies and processes as well. Because you're right, it's not just the data that might be purchased multiple times. But if we're buying that data and then using it on different architectures where it's not shareable with those that it's able to be shared with based on those licenses and contract agreements, then we aren't being efficient and uh, we're not meeting the speed of need for uh, our warfighters, our decision makers, and our policymakers who use that data on a regular basis. And so we're initiating conversations through the strategy about how that architecture is built out how we might move away from, for example, a pretty strong reliance right now on the data itself, the images, and drive industry towards a construct where we're getting services that are informed by the imagery rather than the imagery itself, because it does take a long time to move that imagery around, look at it, assess it, analyze it, and then make the assessments or decisions that are needed based on the data. In cases like, uh, for example, in the commercial world, There's good capabilities where uh, some of the partners are looking at, for example, parking lots to determine high business hours for different entities and then taking differences in those parking lot uh, capacity rates and determining investment opportunities for those businesses. So we call that change detection. So we're looking at rather than getting the images ourselves, could we have some sort of service that provides a change detection that makes things faster and easier for our analysts and our consumers? But isn't a lot of that analysis and interpretation and projection of this type of imagery really part of the NGA secret sauce? And so how do you maintain the national security advantage that you need when the vendors of data are getting higher and higher, and I guess you'd call it the food chain, of being able to use the imagery? Yeah, there's a wide spectrum of uh, analytic effort that goes into the assessments that we provide. And the example I used about the parking lot capacity is something that we have seen through industry that the machines can be taught how to make those assessments with a pretty high accuracy rate. A lot of the other work we do is really not transferable to machines at this time, although there's a lot of work going on across the community in the artificial intelligence machine learning realm to see what could be done uh, with the right amount of confidence to allow us to let the machines do what machines do best and then let the human analyst do what the human analyst does best. There is uh, also enough data coming through our analyst enterprise 
that we could use machines to help prioritize some of the work that's being done so that the, the analysts can look at some of the higher priority things to make sure we're putting eyes on and getting uh, completely accurate assessments based on the expertise that those analysts who are highly trained and highly skilled bring to the table. And they might also be integrating other data sources not available to the vendor and doing that in a way that gives the, let's call it, strategic offset to the NGA that would not be available anywhere else? That's correct. Can't go into a lot of detail, obviously, sure. here, but um, of course, our analysts look at a variety of, of information from a variety of sources. Commercial imagery is one key piece of that, and uh, we want to make sure we're using the commercial imagery capabilities for the right things at the right security level to provide the right assessments where it can provide a complete assessment by itself, but also contributions to other assessments where those multiple sources provide greater fidelity and a greater clarity of information for our customers. And would it also be accurate to say that even with all of the commercial data and technology coming into NGA, into the really to the national security establishment, as you've described, that there are still sources of imagery that are exclusive to NGA and will remain so because of national security purposes? Yes, that is the case. Uh, again, we have uh, some really good partners in the community that provide capabilities for us that go above and beyond what the commercial uh, community can currently provide. Uh, although the commercial industry is really uh, expanding pretty quickly with different phenomenologies and different capabilities. So it's a really good complement across the board for the national security enterprise. Yeah, but the more and more they launch dozens and scores of CubeSats, the better they get, I guess. They are constantly making improvements, both in the amount of access they have uh, because of the numbers of satellites they're launching, and also in some cases, as I mentioned, uh, phenomenology and uh, the resolution of some of the satellites that they're putting up. And finally, what about data security and mitigation of risk? Because that was also mentioned in the strategy that uh, Admiral Sharp outlined. Yeah, Tom. So, you know, we uh, consider the commercial industry a key partner within the GeoInt enterprise, and we believe that taking an enterprise approach is the right approach because then we maximize the strengths of everyone who's contributing to it. But at the same time, the enterprise is only as secure as the weakest member of the enterprise and not defining who that is right now, just a general concept. So we want to make sure as we connect the enterprise for different uh, sources of information and data to help make our analysis stronger and better. That connectivity touches just about everything that we do. And so we look at things like cyber attacks that have happened in the past by different nation states. And the fact that our adversaries have demonstrated capability to breach um, our nation in cyberspace. And we've done a lot of work uh, through our um, technology efforts here within uh, NGA, but also across the community with our partners there to make sure we're putting the protections in place as we connect different members of the enterprise to make sure our vulnerabilities are minimized. So there are things that we're doing along with other partners like looking at the President's Executive Order 14028 to improve cybersecurity with zero trust guiding NGA's uh, cybersecurity standards and uh, working with the DOD and the IC to leverage the best capabilities that are available. Gary Duno is the Associate Director for Enterprise at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA 
And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us, um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Kristen here, reminding you not to do things. What I mean is, with same-day delivery for everything from gifts to groceries, you only have to do the things you want to do. To not do the other things, visit shipped.com. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 